written thousands of years ago. Every page, every story, inspired from God. Do they apply to me? Is the Old Testament obsolete? With Pastor Jim Scudder, Jr. Our Bible is one book. Now, there's 66 books, but it has a major division in it. You have the first two-thirds or so that we call the Old Testament. And that's a pretty big division, isn't it? There's a lot there. It's the original Hebrew work of God through the Jewish people to bring us the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And then we also have another major division we call the New Testament. And again, these are, are Jewish people that God used to pen these scriptures, but they were penning them in Greek or perhaps Aramaic, the language of the day of Jesus. And so we have this uh, complete book, and it has an incredible flow throughout the whole book. But because we call one big division old, some people assume that just means antiquated, we don't really need it. We don't need to read it. We don't need to know it because it's old. Why would I need to know something that's old? Well, that's the question that we're going to be solving again today. Is the Old Testament obsolete? Now, in order to illustrate this, we've asked some of you to bring in objects that your children or grandchildren don't know what it is. And so far, we've been successful in this quest uh, are there any kids in this room that would like to help me out? I see one right here in the front row. Come on up here. This young lady I know very well. Her name is Willow. She is our granddaughter. Now, Willow, I hope you don't break our record. So I want you to stand on this side, and I'm going to reveal what's under here. And I want you to tell me what it is. Do you know what it is? No. No. Okay. You want to pick it up and look at it closer? Still no clue? No. Okay. You hold this. All right. I'm going to do, see if I can um, open, open this thing. And you guys, some of you know what this is, right? Okay. So let's see. I did this the other day. Look at that. This is, do you know what it is now? A camera. That's right. This is a camera. So you would take it, and usually the viewfinder's back here on smaller cameras. It's actually this right here. You look down, and you would take the picture. I don't even know how you take the picture on this thing. Some of you uh, photographers would know. And there's actually inside of this a a roll of film. So that's another obsolete item, right? You remember back in the day, and this is most of us remember this, when you had film inside cameras, and I know we had a school yearbook when I was in high school, and we actually would develop our own pictures. So I've, I've been in the dark room with the red light and all the smells, whew, um, developing film. Now this, this film is, is old. This is an old Kodak. I think this is one of the very first small, like, um, portable cameras that there ever was. So I'm going to leave that right there. Do you want to you look at that closer? Isn't that pretty cool? Back in the day, the world used to be black and white. Most of you don't realize that. And then one day, it became color, which was a very nice day. And so, isn't that cool? Okay. So Willow, because you helped me, you're going to get op another obsolete item, and that's cash. Don't spend it all in one place. Let's give Willow a big hand. Love you, sweetie. Those were the days, though, when you took the pictures and you had to wait. And then you get them developed and the person's eyes are closed. You know? Uh, it was fun. It was, a lot, it was very expensive. Um, now we, we all have much better cameras on our phones and we have way too many pictures, and we just don't do anything with them anymore. So it's, it's crazy uh, how quick the world changes, isn't it? But the pocket camera is obsolete, but there is something that will never grow obsolete, and that is the Word of God. 
As it says in Luke 21, 33, heaven and earth shall pass away. Would you read these next words with me? But my words shall not pass away. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? But since we call the Old Testament old, some people think there's really no relevance in the Old Testament today. Do I even need to, to study it? There's actually one kind of a well-known preacher that has very, very much minimized the Old Testament. And I think that we need to, as Christians, understand the importance, the foundation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, to us. It is everything to us. Without it, we wouldn't know a lot. For instance, if you were to read in Hebrews, very much a New Testament book, Hebrews 11, verse 8, we hear about this person right here. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. So who is this Abraham? Where did he come from? Where did he go? How is this all connected to a story of faith? He went out not knowing whether he went. And it says, by faith, he sojourned. That word means he, he uh, lived a kind of a nomadic lifestyle uh, where you're you're a shepherd living in a tent with your flocks and you're going to move to greener pastures. I don't know how many of your wives would say, yeah, let's leave our nice house in a really nice civilized part of the world and all this water and, and abundance and let's go to a place that we have no idea what it is and let's live in tents. That'd be fun. But by faith, they did this. They, they went to this land of promise. And this is a really important word to God. This would be a very important word to us. I'll just tell you this. I was uh, typing out a message to a gentleman from our church who is incarcerated. And I was encouraging him about the promise of God. The promise of God. And I said, God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Now, he sometimes, I'm sure, feels left and, and forsaken. But he's not. We have a promise of God. We have to accept that promise by faith, don't we? So here, Abraham is a beautiful picture of faith where he went into a strange country. We now know that country as Israel, but that in that day, it was the, the area of Canaan, dwelling in tabernacles, that's these tents, with Isaac and Jacob. They also lived that nomadic lifestyle. The heirs with him of the same promise. So the promise went through Isaac and Jacob, whose name literally was changed to Israel. For he looked, Abraham, looked for a city. Now remember, he's leaving an area of the world that is, it is the civilized area of the world. It is where civilization basically came from, sprung forth. The Tower of Babel, the, the, uh, the great civilizations of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians, of the Chaldeans, these were the Mesopotamian civilizations. If you go into, to a museum, even right here in Chicago at the Oriental Museum, and that's a free one, by the way. If you haven't gone there, you've got to go there. You're going to see actual stonework from Babylon. Stonework that Daniel would have seen with his eyes. These are the great civilizations that would spring up from where Abraham came from. But he wasn't looking for a city that he could see with his eyes. He looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Let me ask you a question. Who can build a better city? Us or God? That's an important question because often we are faced with this decision. Am I going to feast my eyes on something that is man-made and it looks so wonderful, it looks so great, it looks so tempting, but really when you, when you get it, you're not fulfilled? Or are you going to look with your eyes of faith at what God has promised in the future, which is going to be far greater than anything we can even imagine? What are you going to do? We're faced with these decisions every day and every moment. Hopefully we can learn from Abraham on how to look for that city that God has made. Through faith also, Sarah, let's not forget Sarah in all of this. God bless Sarah. Herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. What does that mean? 90? 90? 
How many of you women would even dream of doing, of, of having a child at even 50? 90. 90. Uh, what a woman of faith. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. By the way, were they perfect? No, we're going to read their stories. They both failed. Aren't you glad God uses people that have failed? Because there's hope for us, isn't there? But she judged him faithful. She believed the promise as well. Therefore sprang there even of one, Abraham. Through Abraham comes this one, this one that's going to save the world. It's going to provide salvation to everybody. God picks one to save many, and this is all through Abraham. And him as good as dead, right? Because Abraham was a hundred, okay? So many as the stars of the sky. Can you imagine Abraham out there in the dark night looking up in this country, this land called Canaan? It's not his homeland, but he still looks up and he sees the sky full of stars. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been out on a dark night in a dark area and you look up and it's just, it's, it, it, it makes us feel very small. It makes the creation look very big and it is. But, but he, every time Abraham sees a star, he's thinking uh, all of the, the promises of God, that his descendants are going to be like the, the stars and the sand of the sea, it says. So he's going to have a, a lot of descendants. And in Abraham, we're going to find the whole world is promised a blessing. So let's get into this. That's the New Testament. And we're going to use that as a springboard to dive back into the Old Testament. Before we go back to Abraham and Sarah, and today we're going to find out that their names weren't Abraham and Sarah. At first, they were close, Abram and Sarai. Abraham and Sarai. And they would emphasize the second syllable, Sarai. Before we go to them in a little bit, let's go back and talk about which version of human history you want to believe. What version of human history do you want to believe? Now, there is a version that has been perpetuated, especially by Charles Darwin and those that have adhered to his theory called evolution, that the history of the world is, includes millions of years of death, of suffering, of purposelessness. Is that the version of history you'd rather believe? Or would you rather believe the biblical version of human history, which is, in the beginning, God created us in his image in six literal days for a purpose? And you look at the genealogies in Scripture, and, and the Bible gives a lot of detail and accuracy in ages, we can conclude with confidence that the earth is not much more than 6,000 years old. Now, th that's staggering because smart people with degrees have said that the earth is millions of years old, that, that humans are many thousands of years old, but the Bible gives it in a much shorter time scale. And a lot of those millions of years are built into the humanist time scale because without them, there's no chance that anyone would believe that we came from mud. Okay? No one's going to believe that unless you have millions of years. But if you have millions of years, somehow in our, in our human brain, it seems plausible. So they, they read into the story of geology, the story of of human history, these millions of years, because they have to have them. And if you're astute, and somebody's telling you this, a professor, a history channel, whoever it is, if you're astute and you wanna, you, you wanna challenge their presuppositions, everybody has presuppositions, okay? I have one. I presume that God created us. Why? Because I'd rather believe what God said who was there than Charles Darwin who wasn't. It's that simple. It's that simple. So I'm going to question their presuppositions. And I'm going to look at the evidence and see all these sedimentary layers that they say represent eons of, of time that um, contain billions of fossils. And I'm going to say that, that, and it's a big water, global water event, that fits something that the Bible says. But no humanist will ever say it was a global flood. They'll never say that. Why? Because it's in the Bible. Even if the evidence says it's a global flood, they'll never say that. Why? Because it's in the Bible. That's a problem, isn't it? 
So who are you going to rather believe in your version of human history? Someone that wasn't there or someone that was there? God was there. He directed Moses to write the history, and that's what we're studying today. The Smithsonian Magazine, there was an article in it that said this. The idea that humans evolved in Africa can be traced to Charles Darwin. In his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, Darwin speculated that it was probable that Africa was the cradle of humans because our two closest living relatives, chimpanzees and gorillas, live there. Well, that's great evidence, isn't it? So we must have come from Africa. Nothing against Africa. I love it. I've been there. It's a beautiful place. Truly amazing people live there and I love Africa. But the Bible says that There was a garden, there was sin, there was uh, some time, uh, there was a global flood, there was a repopulation from the family of Noah and his sons, and they were supposed to repopulate the earth, and they didn't, they held into one area, they tried to build a tower, they were trying to make a name for themselves, and God divided them by dividing languages, okay? And, and all of that, look at this, this next image. If you're watching, some of you are listening. So I, I have a, a, an image of the earth with uh, the, the, the descendants of Noah all coming from one place that we call Babel. And, and that's the, in Mesopotamia, which if, if you're looking at the Persian Gulf, uh, and then there's what's called the Fertile Crescent. Crescent, basically it's the, the Tigris and the Euphrates River and the, the watershed and, and this crescent that goes all the way into the land of Israel. But that, that civilization sprang from here, and archaeologists confirm that. Okay? So are we going to believe Darwin that says humans came out of Africa, or are we going to say we're going to believe in the Bible and in what archaeologists are actually digging up that says that, um, that civilizations sprung up fully developed, no, they had crude stone tools and they, they, they lived in caves and they drew. You know, I'm sure if you're, if you're human and you need a tool, you need a knife, uh, and, and they haven't figured out how to, to melt steel or whatever, you're going to use whatever you can use. But they're fully developed. The Neanderthals, by the way, have been uh, discovered to have incredible technologies. Very smart, bigger uh, cranial capacity than we do. These are humans. If someone lived in a cave, it's probably because he didn't want to pay a mortgage. Property tax. I sometimes wouldn't mind living in a cave <laughs> for a day or two. But their, their civilization springs. Okay. Now, the uh, nationalgeographic.org actually verifies what I'm saying. There's a couple quotes from from their website about this. Civilizations first appeared in Mesopotamia. Okay, again, Mesopotamia, here's a, an image, is this fertile crescent area. If you're, if you're looking at the Persian Gulf, you're going to look to the north and to the west. That's Mesopotamia. Civilizations first appeared in Mesopotamia, what is now Iraq, and later in Egypt. So again, we're, we're springing from this area of the world, and then that uh, civilizations are going to go in, in basically all directions because God split the languages. There would have been a roughly 80 or so sons, grandsons, great-grandsons of Noah mentioned in Genesis 10, and these are all the different family groups that we think were at Babel. God split the languages, so you would expect to see around a hundred or so language families. All languages go back to the language family. Of course, there's a lot of uh, uh, variants in, in in even English, right? If you go to other places that are are somewhat isolated from here, and you're you're speaking English, yeah, you kind of understand each other. But I've had real trouble in the Bahamas and, and in England and uh, other places that they supposedly speak English. Of course, we know we speak it correctly here in the Midwest. But uh, it's just weird how language does, it does change. But if you can trace back all these language families, there's from, from 7,000 languages, they say there's really only about 100 language families. And that lines up very nicely with the Bible, doesn't it? Okay. 
But National Geographic continues, and I'm, uh, I want to try to illustrate this to you here. Um, so they say the civilization first appeared in Mesopotamia. And by the way, these are fully developed civilizations with, with sophistication. Uh, later in Egypt, so let's see if I can zoom in here. There's Egypt, okay? And then it, it, it says, civilizations thrived in the Indus Valley by around 2500 BC. So the Indus Valley, if you understand your geography, is right here in Pakistan. So you see the, maybe you don't. It just disappeared on us. I'll go back to this. Uh-oh. Okay, there we go. Um, Indus Valley, 2500 BC, nationalgeographic.com says, in China, which you, you know where China is, by around 1500 BC, which you would assume it's going to take a little bit of time for civilization to spread, right? And this, again, fits exactly with what the Bible says. You have it all springing out of Mesopotamia. It's, uh, it's going in all these different directions in this valley by 2500. Uh, in China, civilization is found by around uh, 1500 BC. And then you're finding it all the way in Mexico. You say, now how do you, how do you get to Mexico from here? Well, they could have taken a boat. Uh, Noah was able to build a, an, an ark that survived a global water catastrophe. But there are also ways to, uh, if, especially during the Ice Age, the, the oceans would have been very warm after the flood. A lot of condensation, a lot of moisture would have gone over land as the earth got cooler. It would have snowed a lot in the northern regions. You say, well, how would they have, if, if there's a land bridge, they could have gone up through Russia and then back down through the Bering Strait down to um, North America, down to Central America, South America, how would they trans that area if there's massive ice sheets? Well, remember, there would have been a microclimate right along the shoreline, okay? They could have uh, hugged the shoreline because of the warm water. Even today, there's microclimates in Alaska and even in, in Oregon and different places where it's very warm and there's, there's no snow, but then as you go inland, there is more cold, and snow because of the, the temperate water keeping it warm. So they could have, and if there's a lot of ice on the continents, and they're talking about miles high, even here in Chicago, a mile high of ice, okay? Then the ocean levels would have been a lot lower, creating what? A lot more land, and most of the, the earth could have been uh, reoccupied walking. Isn't that amazing? So it all does make sense with a biblical worldview, but we see this all the way, uh, civilizations developing to every continent out of Mesopotamia. That's what the archaeologists are finding, every continent except Antarctica. It says the southern part of the modern country, Iraq, is called the cradle of civilization. The world's first cities, writing systems, and large-scale government developed there. Okay? So that actually fits exactly with what the Bible says, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing? Now let's talk about the descendants of Noah, the descendants of his sons. We have the three sons, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. And if you actually, we can go back and trace this by looking at geography, place names, uh, names, uh, even, even within language, we can find that many of Japheth's descendants settled in Europe. And if your ancestry comes from Europe like mine does, we are likely, not for sure, but likely descendants of Japheth. You're going to be, one of these guys is your great, great, great grandfather, okay? Not all of Japheth's family went to Europe, but a lot of them did. And generally speaking, that's true. And people can trace that even today. And you look at his sons and grandsons and the place names are still within those vicinities. They also went up into North Asia and some into the Middle East. Shem's descendants are many of the European, or I'm sorry, the Middle Eastern uh, nations, including the nation of Israel. They're from Shem. And then also some of Shem's descendants went to the Far East. Okay, isn't that interesting? And then Ham, some of Ham's descendants went into China, 
Many went to Africa and were down in, in that area and in Egypt and other places. Now, would we be able to find any evidence of this? There's actually a ton of evidence of this. I'm just going to give you one little piece of evidence. If you looked at the Chinese characters for ship, the three characters that make up ship are eight people boat. What? What? Why? Why would eight people boat make up the word ship in early Chinese? Isn't that incredible? And there's all sorts of evidence for this, friends, but this is a major one, and, 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 and the Chinese also have many other symbols that tie back into Scripture. I just find this so fascinating. I showed this to you last time, but I'm going to show you this also again this time, Table of Nations from Genesis 10. So we have the Tower of, of Babel, and we find that we have not only uh, Shem, Noah's son, but we also know that we go down the lineage from him after the Tower of Babel. And we know that his lineage after Shem that we're going to talk about today, the lineage of the Jewish people, is our Arphaxed, Selah, Eber, Peleg. If you're reading through the scripture in Genesis 10, that's what you're going to find. Now let's talk about Peleg for a second. In Genesis 10, earlier in verse 25, it says that unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. Okay, so this is him. For in his days was the earth divided. Now, some have said, well, maybe this is the splitting up of continents. I think the continental uh, movement all happened the beginning of the flood, fountains of the great deep opened, continents moved quickly, smashed into other continents, raising up mountains, and that was all near the end of the flood, because now, now there's mountains. The whole earth was covered before that with water during the flood. So what is this earth divided? I think this is simply a reference to the Tower of Babel. We don't know exactly when the Tower of Babel was. We know it was between the flood and Abraham. Okay, so we know it's somewhere between those two, but if, if that reference to Peleg and the earth divided, that makes sense to me. And that would be around 100 years. Some have put it exactly at 106 years after the flood. So we have 106 years after the flood to the time of Peleg, the Tower of Babel. And that's, that's probably correct. Now, if you continue to read in Genesis 11... This is, this is the lineage of eventually Abraham and then Jesus. You're going to find that Peleg had a son named Rehu, who had a son named Sarag, who had a son named Nahor, who had a son named Terah. And we're going to start with Terah today. And Terah is going to be the one that brings us a chosen person and a chosen people. And God is going to pick one person that through that one person is going to eventually come the fulfillment of the promise of redemption that he gave to Adam and Eve right after the first sin. Okay, This is exciting to me as we talk about Abraham and uh, his, his descendants. But let me stop here a second. And if it goes through this line that we just described through Adam and Seth and Jared and Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, Shem, Arphaxed, Selah, Nahor, Terah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the way down, eventually we're going to get to one named Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, born of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. And he would be approximately, if, if you were related to the Davidic line, he would be approximately your 140th cousin. Okay? Think about that. In human terms, in biblical terms, that would be about what Jesus would be if you had of that lineage. But, but about that far back. From Adam to Noah, so we have the creation of the world and we have Adam, till the flood and to Noah, we have 1,656 years. So we're trying to kind of keep all of this in our, in our mind. Adam would be approximately, this is interesting, our 85th grandfather, 85th great, 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 okay? Did you know that? 
Okay, approximately your 85th grandfather. And then you have Noah, who would be your 75th grandfather. All right, so definitely both of, both of them are definitely your grandfathers. And then we're not sure if it was Ham, Shem, uh, Ham Shem, or, Shem, or Japheth. Sounds like the three stooges a little bit there, doesn't it? The way I say it. Um, and then we don't know, you know which one you necessarily connect to, but some people can, can trace it and, and find it. It's pretty interesting. So from the flood to the Tower of Babel, if we use Peleg as our marker, that's another 106 years, which is four generations. And then we have from the Tower of Babel to Abraham, another 250 years. So if you're from Abraham, if you're a descendant of Abraham, if you're Jewish or if you're Arab, uh, then he would be your 65th grandfather. Okay? So you have 10 generations separating Adam to Noah, 10 generations separating Noah to Abraham. That's a little easier to understand, right? If we're trying to understand biblical timelines. So wouldn't that be cool if you had Abraham as a grandfather? Some of you do. Some of you do. Let's talk about one other thing as we're, we're going through this. Uh, back at this last slide, you saw that, and those of you, sorry, that are, are listening to the podcast or uh, listening on the radio, you're having trouble visualize, visualizing this. But uh, I'll, try to, I'll try to describe it to you as best I can. I have a, a timeline that has the creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and Abraham. You notice on this timeline the lengths of lives. Adam lived 930, Seth 912, Methuselah was the granddaddy, right? 969. Noah lived 950 years. And then we start to see a shortening of the life, of life. Shem was 600, Arphaxad 438, Selah 433. And now we're starting to see in, in around Abraham's day, lifespans that are a lot more like they are today. So the question is, what happened? What happened here to create this curve, this downward curve to the length of lives in this world. Well, some have surmised that there was a huge environmental change after the flood. What does that mean? Well, we don't know exactly the pre-flood conditions, but everything in the, the geologic uh, record, pre-flood record of fossils, you have massive clams, you have massive trees. Uh, it seems like, and all of the incredible vegetation that's colified, or has become oil. It, this world had to be incredibly lush, the whole planet. Okay, So I think that there, there had to be some conditions pre-flood that were a lot better for life than now. Others have thought, well, maybe it's a genetic bottleneck. So you have Adam and Eve who had pure genetics, and then you have sin, and everyone born has some genetics that are mutated, and, and those mutations are mostly, most often harmful. That, by the way, goes against evolution that says all these mutations are helpful. No, they're usually not helpful at all, I would say almost all the time. So you have the introduction of these, and then you have at, uh, at the flood, and then also you have a, a genetic bottleneck at the flood, because now we're only going through the line of Noah, but then also at Babel, you have another genetic bottleneck because now your, your ancestors are all within that family wherever they went to. So we have uh, the, the, the introduction of more of these negative gene mutations, and perhaps that was part of what shortens our lives. Okay, we don't know, but we do know that they lived a long time earlier on. And that also means, this is really interesting, that Abraham would have known Noah. Isn't that interesting? At the very end of Noah's life, Abraham was born. Okay? So that would have led to what we call ancestor worship and, and elevating humans into gods, false gods, small g. Oh, why are they living so long? And we're dying at 100 and they're living to, to 500 or 900, Right? So that, that would have probably also led to what is referred to as, as Greek mythology and, and uh, the false religions of the day. So another thing that, uh, that I wanted to point out before we continue on talking about Abraham himself is 
Nimrod. The Bible tells us that Nimrod was part of the building of the Tower of Babel. He was actually the one in charge. We read about him back in Genesis 10. And then there's a tradition that says from Nimrod, he married his mother, Samaris. They had a supposed miraculous conception of a child, Tammuz, and we believe that Tammuz is related to Baal, which we, we find in Scripture as a false god. So we also think coming from Babylon comes the Babylonian mystery religion. And if you want to read about that and how God finally judges that at the end in the future, and it's still around, that's in Revelation 17. Okay, was that too much information? You kind of got all of that? Okay, let's continue. Now, if we were to take this, old, early portable camera by Kodak, and we were to, to, to take a snapshot of the family that God was going to use to bring us hope, to bring us salvation, to bring us redemption, we're going to aim this camera at a family that lived in Mesopotamia, and the family was Terah, Abram, Abram's brother Nahor, uh, Haran is another brother. These three brothers, Haran would die, would be the ones, actually Abraham, but at first it was the whole family that was started to go down. We're going to snap their picture. Let's read about it in Genesis 11, and we're going to flow from that down into Genesis 12. This is the story of God choosing one to bless, to save, to offer salvation to the whole world. This is incredible. I love this story here. Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, Haran. Now these, and by the way, there's also a town of Haran, so don't confuse that. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, Haran, Haran begot Lot. Now you've heard of Lot. Lot went with Abraham. Lot was a nephew. Haran died, so Lot took, or Abram, Abram, Abraham took Lot with. And there's a whole story about that and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees, or the Chaldeans. So this again is an area of Mesopotamia. They don't know exactly positively for sure where Ur was, because Ur also means land. And it could be the land of the Chaldeans, and it's, it's a region, or, you know, obviously probably was a particular city, but they, they lived in that region of the world. And Abram and Nahor, Genesis eleven twenty nine, took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Sarai. And then the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Okay? Now that's a little interesting because why would Abraham's brother marry his brother's daughter? Right? And we're going to talk about that and also talk about the fact that Sarai, Sarah, later on we're going to learn that she is the half-sister of Abraham. Okay? You say, well, that's, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Well, it wasn't wrong at that time. It was common at that time. They wanted to keep the inheritance within the family. And this was very common early, of course. Somebody would have had to marry a sister with Adam and Eve. And because of the genetics of the day, it wasn't wrong. It wasn't against God. It wasn't harmful. Of course, it is harmful today. That shouldn't happen. It can't happen today. And there's laws against that. There were laws in the time of Moses. And we read about that, Deuteronomy and, um, and Leviticus. Obviously, it's wrong later, but it wasn't wrong at this time. Uh, but Sarai was barren. And had no child. No, this is a really, really big problem. But this is also an incredible story of faith, right? Because she couldn't have a child. And that was a big problem. It's a, it's a hard thing today. But it was way worse back then. It, there was a great stigma if you couldn't have children. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Now, you remember Canaan? We talked about last time. Was, Canaan was a descendant of Ham. There was a curse put on Canaan. And he and his descendants went and populated a lot of the land we call Israel today. 
There were different people groups within, but they were all called the Canaanites. They all came from Canaan. So God is bringing Abram and Sarai down into this new land. And they came unto Haran. Again, that's the name of the brother, but it's also the name of a town. And we do know where Haran is today. Haran, if, you, if you're looking in northern Syria, just across the border into Turkey, that's Haran. It's, it's definitely, people know where that is today. And they dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, so here is a map that kind of shows this. This is Haran. Uh, some people have assumed that Ur is Urfa, which is just north of Iran. Others have put it down in, closer to and further away from Babylon. Either way, they came to Haran, and from Haran, Abraham would leave and go down into the land of Canaan. And you see here on the map, uh, Damascus is listed. So we go to Genesis 2-1, and this is an awesome passage. Now the Lord said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, into unto a land that I will show thee. I will make of thee a great nation, and will bless thee, and make thy name great, for thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. Do you like blessings? I like blessings. Do you like cursings? I don't like cursings. Because God said, I'm going to bless them that bless thee. Those that bless Abraham's descendants through Isaac and Jacob, you're going to be blessed. I believe that. I want that. I'm going to bless the Jewish people. I'm going to love them. I'm going to thank them. I'm going to honor them. I'm going to do everything I can to show the love that I have. Why? Because they brought me my Savior. They were the ones that brought us the scriptures. If, if that was all, we should love them. But I also believe there's a future God has promised them certain things on this earth that are unconditionally promised that God will fulfill. God has not done with them either. We need to love them. And, and with that comes a blessing. And I want to be blessed. And, and in thee, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now we're going to keep hearing this repeated in the story of Abraham, but this is the Abrahamic covenant. God, God, God doesn't say, Abraham, if you do this, I'm going to do this. God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. How are we all blessed by Abraham? Yeshua, Jesus. The one that finally came to redeem us, to free us from our sin. The greatest curse of, of all is sin and hell. Then Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him and Lot went with him and Abram was 75. That's pretty old to start a journey. Pretty old to start living in tents when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all that their substance and th that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem. Isn't that interesting? Shechem is in Israel. Shechem is in what's called the West Bank. I like to call it Samaria. As a matter of fact, that's where Jesus sat on the well of Jacob and talked to the Samaritan woman. That's Shechem. That's Nobilis today. So now Abraham and Sarah and Lot and their family, now they're in Shechem under the plain of Morah and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto thy seed, will I give this land? And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. This land is going to be Abraham's descendants through Isaac and Jacob. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel. Bethel is just a little further south of Shechem. It's before Jerusalem. Okay. And pitched his tent, having Bethel on the E on the west and Hai, which we, we would call Ai or I, later to be conquered by, um, um, sorry, Biden moment. Um, and I, I'm very young too. Did I say that? Did I just say that? Um, it's literally gone. It's gone. But I'm fine. I have all my mental faculties. I can lead the country without a problem. No problem at all. Say it louder. Joshua, why is that so hard? I was just testing you guys. I know what I'm doing. I have no problem leading this church. 
Uh, God love them. Yeah, we need to pray. We need to really pray for our, for our president, don't we? Seriously. So later, Joshua would conquer Ai. So he built an altar between the two and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And next time, we're going to talk about Abraham and his, uh, his mega bloopers, just like mine. We all have them. We all have them. But I want the blessing of God. I want to bless the Jewish people. They have blessed me by bringing us our Messiah, the, the Savior of the world, the one that has paid the penalty for all sin. Think about this for a second, and this is the application today. If you want to take something home, this is it. God asked Abraham to leave the cradle of civilization, to leave a place with ample water and fertile land, a prosperous place. He wanted Abraham to leave a center of commerce and a center of human achievement. Abraham left prosperity and security for a promise. Would you do that? Do you do that? A promise of something better. And all of that stuff was probably pretty good. They probably had a pretty good life, but they're going to leave that. They're going to, they don't know where they're going. They're going to, they're going to live in tents. It's incredible what he did. But Abraham believed God. That's the simplicity of it. That's all God is asking you to do is believe him. That's all he's asking you to do. He's going to do it. And it would be many generations before God fulfills the promises. As a matter of fact, they still aren't fully fulfilled, right? They don't have peace and safety in their land today. They have some of the land, which is a miracle, but they still have a lot of problems in Israel today, don't they? One day, they're going to have the land in peace and safety with the Messiah sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, guaranteed. I believe that because God said it. And I believe God. I believe God. But God is calling him to leave this place and have this amazing place where eventually his descendants would have a land flowing with milk and honey. But that was decades and decades away. Leaving our houses to live in tents because they believed God. Do you believe God? Tonight, there will be a a human extravaganza in a city that glitters with lights and sin. But it looks so beautiful and tempting, and there's going to be a show in the middle of the the big game. You say, oh, that's so awesome. Super Bowl is so amazing. You don't even like football. Most of you don't like football. You don't watch football. You don't watch, I like football. I like, I watch almost every football game. I like football. You don't even know, you don't even know who played last year. Some of you do, a few of you do. I doubt you know who won. Well, maybe you do. I doubt you know the score, 38-35, Chiefs against the Eagles. But you didn't know that. It was so important last year, and you forgot it already. There's going to be this show, and it's probably going to be very sensual and very humanistic. I don't watch it. I hope you don't watch it. Some of the commercials are funny, but some of them are crass. The game itself is pretty interesting to me, but that doesn't last very long. But that's the, that's the promise of the world. The glitz, the glitter, the promise of all of this. You're finally going to f- feel fulfilled. And at the very end, at the very end, and all the confetti's coming down, and the, the announcer goes up to the, to the stars, and, and they say, okay, you know, what, what did that feel like? Oh, it was amazing. Isn't that true? The next question was almost always, are you going to do it again next year? Like, you, they can't even just savor the moment. Why? Because it's empty. Are you going to do it again next year? That's always the question. Mark my word. That's the promise of the world. Or do you want to buy into the promise of God that he does have something really amazing, really amazing, better than anything we could possibly ever come up with? Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Believe God. Believe God. And God not only will save you, but also God will do great and mighty things through you. And it's not about us anyways. It's about us bringing him glory with our lives. Let's end with Hebrews 9 and and, and verse 29. I love this. And as it is appointed unto uh, unto men once to die. Isn't that kind of a sad verse? 
But after this, the judgment is even worse. This is what we're all guaranteed. But here's the good news. So Christ was once offered. Christ is Messiah. Messiah was once offered. He came through Adam to Noah to Seth to Peleg to Terah to Abram all the way down to Joseph, not Joseph, Judah, all the way down to David and eventually Jesus. He, one person, God picked one, Abram, to save many. God was actually picking Jesus, right? He's going to take one person to save everybody. By the way, are Jews automatically saved because they're Jews? That's not what God was promising Abraham wasn't eternal salvation. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, as we're going to see in a few chapters. It was his faith that saved him and it's faith that saves us and, and Jewish or Gentile or whoever. That's the way of salvation. That's the way it always has been. That's the way it always will be. Jewish people need to believe in Jesus just like we do. That's the only hope. That's the only way of salvation. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Does this word just mean, is this word limited to like just the elect or just certain, you know, God only wants to save certain people? No, this word doesn't mean, uh, doesn't limit the number to many, but not all. This word means lots and lots, okay? One offering, one person died so that many, lots and lots, would be saved. The, the sins would be borne by one. And unto them that look for him, you put your trust in him. You, you believe in him, not yourself, not your religion, but you believe in him. If you do, you will appear the second time without sin unto salvation. not that glorious? That's the gospel, and I hope that you have put your faith in the one that came through Abraham, Jesus, as the Redeemer. The promise, the promise to Abraham to bless the whole world is Jesus. And you can put your faith in him, and, and if you do, you'll be saved. Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and anyone, whosoever believes in him, should not perish, that's hell, but have everlasting life. That's salvation. And if you trust in him, the Bible says that you're spiritually a descendant of Abraham. We're born again. We're born into God's family. And once you're born, you'll never be unborn. We're saved forever. Now let's live like we are sons and daughters of God. Let's not buy into the world's promise, empty promise. Let's totally buy into God's amazing promise that he keeps. He's a promise-keeping God. Don't ever forget that.